0: Think on your feet for our fast and curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at WBEZ.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset, your place for news, politics, arts, and culture. Sports writer and cultural commentator Jamel Hill made headlines back in 2017 when she tweeted that former President Donald Trump was a, quote, white supremacist and has surrounded himself with other white supremacists. The tweet made Hill a target for Trump and his followers, but also became the subject of controversy at ESPN, where Hill was a show host. In her new memoir, Uphill, Jamel Hill details that period of her life and her decision to leave the network. The book also traces her childhood in Detroit, tumultuous family ties, and how she found refuge in writing and journalism. She's a writer for The Atlantic and the host of the podcast, Jamel Hill is Unbothered. Jamel, you begin your memoir with the subject of therapy. You tease that you, quote, started going to therapy on a dare. Tell us about your thoughts on therapy before you started it yourself and what your feelings are about it now.
1: Uh, well, I actually have very positive uh, thoughts on therapy because there were a number of my friends who were, um, you know, uh, undergoing therapy and they all had really positive experiences. Y'all talked about how much it really helped them. And then, um, you know, I, I always thought that it was it was something where I was impressed with the fact that, uh, you know, in our community, um, as in the black community in particular, like it it, it really has changed. Um, in terms of the conversation, so now I think people feel much more open about it, yeah, and so you know i was I didn't have any stigmas that I felt about going to therapy,
0: yeah, I haven't written a book, Jamel, or I have certainly haven't written a memoir, but i I know that the process involves a lot of conversations, right? A lot of conversations with people in your life, and uh, you talked extensively with your mom, who you haven't always had the greatest relationship with because of her drug addiction. Do you feel in some ways that you've only just learned your mother's story?
1: In some ways, yes. I mean, I knew a lot about it because my mother was very open about um, some of her problems. And I also had to live through it. So I experienced it right alongside with her. So I was not... Really, a spectator. I, you know, I had to navigate around the the abuse. So mm-hmm. there were definitely uh, experiences I could speak to personally, which I wrote about in the memoir. But I think um, the things that I didn't know, and maybe even uh, have more insight into some of the decisions she made, and for that matter, you know, why um, she was uh, self medicating. I think those were things um, that I kind of learned. Um, you know years ago, but I think, as we've had more conversations and especially for uh this memoir that they're even more it just brings it more into focus for me,
0: speaking of learning what what did you learn about forgiveness from this process?
1: Well, I think for uh you to forgive somebody one, they have to be accountable and acknowledge their mistakes and you know the thing about my mother she's always always done that, yeah, so I think it made the forgiveness much easier, and I forgave her years ago and I think now um even as there's some things um not obviously having to do with with any drug substances there's some things I think psychologically she still struggles with and it allows me to give her grace um or even more grace in those moments because I know so much more about her complete story.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, her story involves a difficult relationship with her mother, your your grandmother. Because your mother experienced sexual abuse from her uncle, your grandmother's brother, so I'm curious your thoughts then on generational trauma and whether that was sort of front of mind as you wrote this book.
1: Oh, it was you know kind of a, a one of the reasons why I wrote about it is that not only me I think a lot of people come from families where there's some very complex and difficult dynamics and you become more aware as you grow older, of how that trauma is passed down. Mm -hmm. And so uh, even the way you may parent, you know, if if you have kids, is that, you know, my grandmother was parented a certain way. She passed that down. And, you know, um, even from my mother, from my grandmother to me, you know, there's a through line there. So, you know, it's a lot of work to break that trauma because that one requires transparency, and it requires being open about what the problems are. And in a lot of family dynamics, there's a real hesitancy to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, especially sometimes in, in the Black community, this is not, you know, this is not necessarily a, uh, um, a tried and true for everybody. But what well, I will say, there's this sort of mentality of what happens in this house, stays in this house.
0: Yeah. Where, where does the hesitancy come from, you think, that you, you talked well, about?
1: Well, I I think the hesitancy is the fact that, you know, we've lived the history of of being a vulnerable people, vulnerable based off some institutional factors, vulnerable to racism, to, you know, um, uh, different kinds of terrors. And those terrors that we have to deal with in the outside world make their way into our own families in terms of how we deal with trauma. And so um, I think that's a big part of it. Um, And most of us are conditioned to believe vulnerability is harmful just in the sense of if you allow people to understand what your weaknesses are, what um, your your vulnerabilities are, then that is going to make you more susceptible to being mm-hmm. taken advantage of. And some of it is is shame. It's just flat out shame um, in that, you know, you, you want a better life for every generation of your family. And when these problems arise, rather than sometimes deal with them, people find it much easier to just sweep them under the rug yeah. or don't talk about it or work around it without really addressing it.
0: Well I remember months ago when um when the Dobbs ruling came down over the summer you teased that your forthcoming memoir was going to include your abortion story. I appreciate you being so open and and so vulnerable in sharing that.
1: Yeah I mean I I felt like you know there has been certain conversations around um, reproductive rights and around abortion. And what I wanted to do is uh, share my story because I think people have it in their mind who deserves to have abortion uh, access and who doesn't. And sometimes those um, perceptions are really based off stereotypes. You know, here I was a woman in my mid 20s who felt like she had a pretty um, solid career plan ahead of her and I didn't want to kids. And um, so I you know, made the choice I felt like was best for me. And I know um, that people don't really think of uh, abortion as like something that maybe touches a a lot of people's, you know, families or, you know, a lot of women that they know. But I guarantee that most people um, know someone who has either had an abortion or paid for one.
0: You are very careful, though, about not naming the other party. Walk us through that decision.
1: But because I wasn't really sure if they had ever disclosed that. And so I didn't want to rob them of the ability to tell their own story. You know, that's not my business to tell. And so I thought that I could still tell my portion of the story effectively without having to involve him.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk about your journey to, to journalism, Jamal. In some ways, I feel like it was classic, right? You started out as an intern at the Detroit Free Press. You worked at a mid-sized paper in, in Raleigh, and uh, eventually you became what at the time was the only Black woman sports columnist in the country. How heavy was the load of carrying that title?
1: It's pretty heavy because it, and it's just hard to avoid feeling as if, um, well, one, understanding the scrutiny you're under because I was the only Black female sports columnist in the country and at a daily newspaper. And then the other part of it is knowing that, and Unfortunately, this is still the case, and I I don't think it's just something that's germane to the newspaper industry, but whenever you're the first, the only, one of those sort of solid, you know, like really um, uh, um, solitary kind of positions, that means that you know innately that everybody is going to judge how you perform and use that to cast a wider judgment on everybody you represent. So if I don't do well, in that job or, um, you know, if I struggle, then that means that Black women inherently don't deserve to have that position. And so that's something I was very aware of. And when you're young and you're Mm -hmm. trying to grow into your own voice, that's a hard responsibility to bear just because you're going to make mistakes and you don't have it all figured out. And you're going to have to, you know, really uh, maybe go through some growing pains until you do find your voice and you do get your rhythm. But as you're doing that, Are you going to get grace? And a lot of times that's not the case because, you know, people are looking for a reason to prove you don't belong.
0: Right. Truer words have not been spoken. I want to read a little section of your book here. You said, uh, these days, so many younger journalists all seem to have the same dream. They want to work for ESPN. There's nothing wrong with ESPN being a dream job and I get why. For many, it's the top career destination. ESPN remains the biggest, most culturally important sports network in this country. ESPN is oxygen for most sports fans. What fool wouldn't want to work at ESPN? Me. I'm that fool. (laughs) So what convinced you to ultimately interview and take a job there?
1: Well, I also had to look at where the newspaper industry was at the time. Um, you know, it, and it, it feels crazy to say this just because I see where the industry is right now. Um, but back then, you know, people were um, looking at uh, ESPN and wondering, or not ESPN, but lo- looking around in newspapers, and you had a sliding profit margin. You had, um, you know, less advertising. There was just a really big growth change happening in the industry. And so I looked at ESPN as an opportunity because, you know, they were growing, they were investing. This is a behemoth of a television network. They had money to spend. So it wasn't really about the prestige of being at ESPN. It was more or less about from a career standpoint, it just made way too much sense.
0: You've got a distinctive voice in your writing and your TV work and your podcasting. But as a black woman myself, I do know that that's not always welcomed. It's a lot of what you just touched on a moment ago. How did you originally discover that voice, though, Jamel? And what and what but, is it that know. what what gives you the courage to to fight to keep that voice, especially at a large network like ESPN?
1: Well, I think initially I had. You know, I, I had a, a bit of a misperception. I thought I, I thought that voice is just something that just came to you one day, almost like you were zapped by lightning. But <laughs> that's not the way, that's not really the way it works. And what happens is, as you get more confident, and, you know, journalism very much is about reps. The more you do it, the better you get at it. So because it's like that, um, that means that through lived experience, through confidence, through all those things, um, you begin to find what it is that what it is inside of you that you feel like other people need to hear. And so for me, it was an evolution of voice. And, you know, by the time I got to ESPN, I was a little more comfortable Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of how I shared my opinion. And, you know, as I did it even more and more, you know, even though I had been probably writing with voice longer than I recognized that I was, um, I really got to a level of confidence where the way I shared it and how I shared it, I wasn't afraid to be myself within my job. The more you do it, the more you get better at being yourself as you do it. And that was kind of what happened with me.
0: Jamel, I want to talk about that moment in 2017, uh, September 2017, when you, you sent tweets out about Donald Trump as part of this long thread. It set off a chain of events including you getting death threats, being called racial slurs, which I'm sure that wasn't the first time, but we'll get into that. Um, We know the type of personality Donald Trump was on Twitter, especially at that time. You also have a lot of followers on there. So did you know that this would go viral or were you caught off guard?
1: I was very caught off guard because it was a few reasons. One, you know, it was just a little, maybe a little more than a month or about a month after Charlottesville. And so I thought that, You know, once that happened, that there we had all, you know, I guess collectively somewhat as a country just kind of agreed to (laughs) in some respects that like the persona that this man had was something that, you know, was very dangerous, bigoted, like all those things. And I thought Charlottesville like really proved that. But it turned out no, that um, it didn't. a lot of people did, did not it didn't know, didn't prove a thing. It didn't, <laughs> it didn't prove a thing. Um, I was in a back and forth with somebody on Twitter and I, who was, I thought, defending Donald Trump a little too hard, very hard, in fact. And so um, when I said that about the president, I had no expectation whatsoever that this will become a thing because I didn't really think what I had to say was really all that controversial.
0: So you also didn't really have the backing of ESPN management at the time?
1: No, I didn't. Um, ESPN at that point, um, they were at a really interesting and critical juncture. The next network was getting criticized a lot by uh, the right wing for being too liberal, for being um, too political. You know, people were trying to polarize ESPN. Mm. And I think um, it was really an uncomfortable place for the network to be in because they had never really been the organization that wasn't the cool kids at the table.
0: Oh, I see. So,
1: yeah, so they um, they were put in the crosshairs quite a bit. And when my tweets came, it kind of set off another political bomb for them. Um, And. Because of that, I think the network just didn't really know how to react. I'm sure, you know, having the White House press secretary um, at the time, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, called for one of their employees to be fired was something they certainly didn't expect, nor for the president to be tweeting about the network. So these were all things that were very new. Mm -hmm. And even though the narrative around ESPN being political and too liberal was not true at all, despite my tweets Uh, I think the network just behaved scared.
0: You spoke out last year about that drama between uh, former ESPN colleagues, Rachel Nichols and Maria Taylor. um, That was over who was going to host the NBA finals that year. You mentioned that that battle, that was reflective of the culture that ESPN had created. Expand on that briefly.
1: This is what I mean by that is that ESPN, I think they at times can be very reactionary to things. And. especially and be as big as they are they can be particularly sensitive to criticism and you know 2020 if we all go back that was a time where many conversations were being had about race and um you know racism and representation and diversity inclusion in the wake of brianna taylor and george floyd and ahmaud arbor a lot of companies were being called to the carpet for how they were um you know doing with these very serious issues and so ESPN, I think they, um, they made a reactionary decision, um, and it had such a tremendous ripple effect. I mean, the culture and inside of ESPN can be kind of ruthless. I mean, this is, a, this is one of, or not one of, this is the leading sports media network in, the, in America. And yeah. there's a lot of very talented people who are there. Everybody is in there fighting for real estate. And because of that competitive environment, um, you know, it, it can really breed a lot of rivalry. It can breed breed resentment. Yeah. And so I was speaking to that culture as well as the fact um, that ESPN, which, you know, at least based off the reports and certainly what people uh, told me who were still inside the network is that they're looking around and assessing where they are. And they decide that, you know to that they want to make a, a decision um, that just had a tremendous ripple effect between two very talented women, and yeah. it's unfortunate it happens in this business where women are pitted against each other all the time too often too often, very often, and so we saw the worst parts of that, and I really hated it for Maria because Maria Taylor um, is an excellent broadcaster who has done more than enough to earn. Um, the position she uh, she was given in, and the position that she has now. And suddenly people are looking at her as if she's kind of some kind of diversity hire, like she's charity. And she got that job because she deserves it.
0: Absolutely. Yay. Um, Kanye West, I don't have to catch you up, Jamel, on, on the, the back and forth and all the things and all the happenings. Feelings, thoughts about this?
1: Well, I guess my overall thought is that, you know, he's a buffoon. And um, I understand he's been very public before about his mental health issues. But, you know, I know plenty of people who are who have mental health issues and none of them say the things that he says. And so I just, I don't think, we work a little too hard, I think, to attach some of the you know bigoted and horrible statements that he said um, about uh, some of the anti-black statements that he said, and obviously about Jewish people, we work, We're working way too hard to give him um, a, a rationale and an excuse. And you know, at this point, you know, with him, it's just kind of like you do when you don't want to watch something. I just, I'm just turning the channel. It's like, yeah. <laughs> okay, man, enough. Because you know, he's, yeah, it's like enough. All right, you monopolize a lot of the news cycle now with your drama and it'd be, and, but, you know, that's kind of at the core of it, who he is. I mean, he has engaged in the pattern of narcissistic behavior for a very long time. So uh, I'm just kind of over it, but I've, I've been in that, in that space with Kanye for years now. So mm-hmm. it didn't just start with this. It's like, I, I hit, so you've been I over it for a while for a while. I was yeah. like, I hit that, you know, like, I'm before done. Sunday's. Yeah, before Sunday service, I was over it. <laughs> before Sunday service. <laughs> Way before then, I was over it. I was like, I'm dead.
0: <laughs> uh, let's return to your personal life for a, a minute here. In the in the few minutes we have left with you, uh, it's right around homecoming season, Jamel, and I know that that's where you met your now husband, Ian Wallace, uh, at Michigan State's homecoming. So is this time of year special for you two?
1: <laughs> you know, it's, that's such a good question because um, in a time when we... Just went to homecoming for the first time since we met uh, a couple weeks ago. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> not been since we met in 2014. So it was, uh, you know, I, I used to have the joke that I guess I got what I came for and haven't been back. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> when, I, when I when I met him. But yeah, it was great to go back and. Um, relive things and just be in that environment again. And uh, a lot of people hadn't seen it since we got married, so it was just fun to be back on campus. And more importantly, I'm glad we won the game. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, MSU won. Um, you know, you're inspiring too. You got married for the first time in your 40s, Jamel.
1: Mm-hmm. Why do you think yeah.
0: waiting longer to get married has become the norm now?
1: I think you know it's about station in life, and I mean that both from a uh, mentally and physically. Um, because uh, mentally, physically, and financially, I should say, I, you know, I think I got married when I was my best self. And um, that's not to say I didn't have more improvements to do or more growth, but I was just really stable in a lot of areas. And I met someone who was basically at the same level. You know, we both homeowners, we both had thriving careers. Um, and we both were willing to put in the work to make things work. And so, even though when we first started um, dating, neither one of us came into it with the idea that we're going to be married. Um, the fact of the matter is uh, we, um, you know, it, it, I guess it, 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 it kind of chose us. And so soon after we're dating, we're seriously like, yeah, it's like, hey, you know what? This could actually work. I like you. Um,
0: <laughs> I like you yeah, around I for like- a long time.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, you
0: know, I'm putting together a panel of of Black women uh, to come on Reset very soon. We're going to talk about our very often complicated relationship with our hair, right? After that recent <laughs> news, the study that's linking relaxers to uterine cancer. You, Jamel, you've been such a force all these years, rocking those beautiful signature braids. I know you've got like a platinum blonde going right now that I'm just loving. Mm-hmm. Why did you make that choice? I'm so curious. And, and what do you think about the current discourse? Around natural hair,
1: so uh, so um, the, <laughs> I went blind. Uh, this is a process that started in the in the pandemic. My braider, I give her all the credit. Maritha, shout out to Braids Your Way in Englewood. Yes, she, she told me she thought a lighter color would really uh, accentuate my features. She was like, a lighter color would be great. And tried a couple of lighter colors. They all look great. And then I just progressively started getting lighter and lighter and lighter. And then I, was like, <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I was like, oh, I was like, oh, why not? Let's just go um, blonde and platinum. And and so, you know, I did. And I guess um, I've always looked at, you know, our hair, at Black women's hair as being something that's uh, intensely personal for us. And also um, it's in many ways how we express ourselves. And, um, you know, now that we are are having, uh, you know, so many great conversations around natural hair, just in terms of the acceptance of it has changed so much since, you know, when I was, you know, first in the mode of like doing my hair and getting my hair done. Like I think about what the conversations look like then where everybody, you know, treated you like a leper if you didn't have a relaxer versus now. And it's markedly different. I mean, I never would have thought like I haven't had a relaxer in probably twelve years. Yeah, I was like, I never would have ever guessed when I first started getting yeah. relaxers and 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 straightening my hair. I never would have guessed that that was coming. But I think now that um, you know you have um, things like the the Crown Act and like there just seems to be a collective community, absolutely um, protectiveness around our hair.
0: Great book, Jamel. Jamel Hill, writer for The Atlantic and host of the podcast, Jamel Hill is Unbothered. The new memoir is called Uphill and it's out right now. You won't be disappointed. Thank you so much, Jamel.
1: Thank you. Appreciate the conversation.
0: This episode of Reset was produced by me and Andrew Merriweather, and it was mixed by Ethan Schwab. If you want more interviews with fascinating people in Chicago and beyond, consider subscribing to our podcast. And when you do, give us a rating. It helps more listeners find us and shows you support the work we do. That's all for Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll see you tomorrow.